Well, good morning. My name is Aaron Ferguson. I'm the college young adult and online pastor. So if you're watching online, i got to find the camera. Hey, say hi on the comments there. Um, you know it's cold when your nose hairs freeze. Did anybody nose hairs freeze? Um, i got a trimmer in my drawer. I didn't use it this morning. It's all good. Um, but uh, if this is your first time, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to worship with us. Thank you for being here. You belong here. And uh, I'm excited to jump in today. Have you ever been so moved with compassion, so moved that you felt it in your gut? Like there's just something going on there. You're just so full of compassion that you feel it right here. In Matthew chapter 9, we'll be reading from there if you want to go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. Jesus is looking at the crowds of people. And it says that he had compassion on them. They were so helpless, so harassed, so beat down by laws and rules and regulations. It said that he had compassion on them. The word compassion doesn't quite give it. In the Greek, the word is splagnizomai. Does anybody know that word? Just so that we can get a little audience participation, share with somebody, say splagnizomai. Some of y'all did a pretty good job. Here's what it means. The first part of the word splagna means internal organs. So splagnizomai literally means to be moved so deeply by something that you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Jesus has great compassion and love for those that are hurting, those that are lost, those that are beat down. I took my youth group seven years ago to Honduras. And Honduras is a beautiful country with amazing people. And as we traveled to different villages and towns, uh, providing you know, meals and toiletries and uh, backyard Bible clubs, and we did a, a Muppet show in Spanish that shared the story of, of Jesus. And as we traveled to different towns, I found God just beating down my pride, beating down my arrogance. And there was like a tipping point when I was holding a little eight-month-old baby and in an orphanage. And I was like, God, how can I, from 1,500 miles away, make an impact in the life of this little baby who has no parents? There were children, 100 children in this orphanage, and God just broke me, and I felt this compassion in my stomach. And so I made a commitment. I was like, God, how can I help raise other people to have this great compassion to reach people that are far from God, to reach people that have no hope, that have no people there for them. And so we're going to talk about what does it look like to reach the next generation. I want us to really look at that internal part of your being and see, you know, how am I doing here? I find myself often meeting with younger people with the next generation as I'm a college pastor. And I hear lots of stories of isolation, spiraling out of control, emotions, Loneliness, lack of true friends, um, anxiety, and, and so on and so forth. I hear these stories over and over again. Maybe you have a son or a granddaughter or a niece or a nephew or an employee or someone that you interact with that is a younger, next-generation person, and, you, and you're asking, how can we reach these people with the good news of Jesus? If we want to reach the next generation, there's a couple of things we need to understand. Trust in the American church has been lost. Second, modern meaning no longer comes from the Bible, 
but instead the self. And we will only reach the next generation one person at a time. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He felt it in his gut. And I lost my place. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we take a look at ourselves, as we look at what we worship, what we think about, what we do, how we act, God, will you show us who we are, what we serve? God, will you empower us with clarity, with authenticity to pursue the next generation, to pursue each other, with boldness, with Christ, that we may serve Jesus and him alone. God, speak to us in a clear way and we may, that we may apply this and change our lives and the lives of others. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's focus in on the second part of verse 36. It said, because they were harassed and helpless. You see, these people at this time that Jesus is looking at, these crowds of people have been beat down by the law. They've been beat down by rules and regulations. The scribes, the Pharisees, have been beating them down over and over again. You're poor because this is, uh, you're poor because of your sins. You're poor because of your parents' sins. This is just the way. Jewish people of that day did indeed have some kind of spiritual guides and shepherds, namely the scribes, priests, Levites, and Pharisees. Yet, for the most part, they were worthless. The spiritual people failed those who needed help the most. They were helpless because no one was willing to teach them. No one was willing to love them and serve them. I think for, in many instances, the same is true for our young people today. Do you know they've had instant internet access their entire lives? Unrestrained internet access. Whatever deep, dark, vile place the internet can show them, that's where they can go. And when you have information without discernment, you can't acknowledge between what is right and true and what is wrong and harmful. Many of them struggle with mental health, mental illness, anxiety, like we talked about. Many of them are isolated. They're lonely. They don't have true friends. They don't have true connections. And many of them have had parents, mentors, loved ones who have let them down by being hypocritical, by saying that they love God and actually living in the opposite way. Our young people are harassed and helpless because in many ways the church and Christians have failed them. I want to ask permission. Is it okay if I make us a little uncomfortable this morning? I guess a visual head nod helps. You know know when you're like going to the doctor, like, can you tell me yes or no? (laughs) Um, Trust in the American church has been completely lost with the next generation. They do not trust the modern American church. We as a church have a massive reputation problem. Sexual abuse, 
money laundering, divorce, molestation by priests and pastors, adultery, pride on display, arrogance, seemingly monthly mega pastors are failing, specific sin bashing. This sin's the worst of all sins. Don't do this sin. Bad theology, biblical literacy, and ignorance. Our younger generations have been harassed much of their lives, and they have access to all the dirty details of what's going on amongst Christian people. Their spiritual guides are failing them. Shallow theology is failing them. And many of them, unfortunately, their parents and mentors have failed them. There's, there is hope, by the way. I'm, I'm not just going to beat us up the whole time. If we want to reach the next generation, guess where it starts? It starts right here, and it starts at home. If we want to reach the next generation, it starts right here and at home. I asked numerous students over the years, what do you think about your parents' religious practices? And something you need to know about Gen Z, which is our current generation, they will just tell you what they think at all times. And sometimes like, I don't want to know what you think. Please don't hurt my feelings. Uh, they, they're just honest. And guess what? They want you to be honest back. And so I said, hey, tell me what you think about your parents' religious practices. And one of my students, he said that his dad acts all holy and righteous, has a great smile, firm handshake, amen, yes, sir, all that good stuff at church. But at home, he is a completely different person. Obviously, when you do one thing and act another way, the word that we use to describe those people are hypocrites. Here's what the word hypocrite means. It means to act. It is a Greek word to act one way. If you feel a certain way, but you put on a mask and become a character, you are a hypocrite. You're acting. Do you want to reach the next generation? Do you want to reach your children? Do you want to reach your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your employees, those young people that you interact with? It's vitally important that you take off your mask. You take off your acting face, that you are genuine and authentic and transparent. I'm not talking about COVID mask. I'm talking about your acting mask. The next generation demands radical transparency and honesty. Transparency, confession of sin does this. It removes all pride. Can you imagine if you're a young person and an older person, a parent or something says, hey, I was wrong. I messed up. I sinned. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? The power in that to say, I've been wrong. I love you. I'm your parent. I'm your friend, whatever, but I've done wrong. I sin as well. Another one of my students, she is brilliant. She got a perfect score on her SAT. The predominant conversation that happened in her household was, how are you doing in school? How's your test? How's your grade point average? And she said to me, and they, they attended church every single Sunday. She said to me, Aaron, I've never had one spiritual conversation with my parents, ever. What was salvation in her household? Salvation was scholastic excellence. If she did an amazing job in her school, got her perfect SAT, that was salvation. That would provide happiness for our family. Martin Luther calls it when we love something out of order, disordered love. Another way to communicate this is, it's called idolatry. It's when you love something that's good as an ultimate thing. Idolatry is when you make a good thing an ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with scholastic excellence. 
There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with good jobs. There's nothing wrong with eating a good meal. There's nothing wrong with, with um, having um, influence. But when we make these things the ultimate thing in our lives, when we make these the salvation of our lives, it's apparent. People can see clearly through that. The next generation can see straight through the facades and things that we put up. Two different kinds of saviors. We have an intellectual savior and a functional savior. Here's what I mean. Intellectually, I can ask people, is Jesus your savior? Is Jesus your Lord? And they'll say, yes, he's my Lord. He's my savior. But functionally, people may be operating on a different plane. How do you know what your functional savior is? What do you think about when you wake up? What do you think about when you go to sleep? What is that one thing that will make you happy? What is that thing that you're constantly pursuing that that gives you your energy, that gives you your focus? That's probably your functional savior. That's probably the thing that you're hoping in to, to provide happiness for you. Question, who or what do you serve? What is your functional savior? Joshua 24 14 says this, and this is Joshua saying to a people that have been influenced by the idols and the culture around them. Here's what he says. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Here's the, here's the key point. But as, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a choice. There are so many things that we can serve. There's so many places that we can go, so many things that we can put our heart into. But Joshua says, you know what? Okay, it's all noise. For me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And my prayer for us is that you'll just make a choice. You'll look at the options before you. And instead of you know, putting on the mask and acting one way and saying, well, go to church on Sunday, but then somebody else Monday through Saturday, what if we said, As for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to focus on the Lord and him alone. And we're going to love him first and foremost. My daughter is hilarious. She's three, and she's equal parts indecisive and decisive. Her favorite color is pink. Do we have any indecisive, decisive people? You're like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, um, Then you're probably, yeah, you're decisive and decisive. And so to make things easier on her at dinner, because it seems like it's always a a wonderful battle. Her favorite color is pink, and we have these colored plates. So I go, Millie, we're about to eat dinner. Do you want pink plate or blue plate? And here's what's funny. I'll hold up her plates, and she is dead staring at that pink plate. She's like, I want that pink plate. But for some reason, she can't tell me. She's like, I'm like, do you want pink plate or blue plate? And she's like, um, um, well, um, and I go, do you want the pink plate, don't you? And she's like, yes, yes, yes. So I give her the pink plate. And I think what's amazing about this illustration is we are staring at that thing, that idol, whatever it is, that we think, man, if I could just get that, then I'm going to be happy. And Jesus is like, are you ready to serve me? And you're like, yes, yes, but you're just staring at that thing. He's like, are you ready to follow me? Are you ready to serve me? And you're just staring at it. And he's like, would you look at me? That's my prayer for us. Would we change and shift our focus from those things, those idols that were trying to make us happy and say, I am ready to serve the Lord. 
I'm ready to follow the Lord with my entire being. I'm ready to be transparent. What's your pink plate? So you've committed, okay? You're, you're, you're processing, you're saying, I'm, Aaron, I'm committed. I'm committed to being authentic. I'm committed to being transparent. I'm ready to serve the Lord. I'm ready to love him most. How do I reach the younger generation? How do I reach the next generation? Let's focus in on verse 36, the third part. Jesus said, they were like sheep without a shepherd. You must understand this. To reach the next generation, modern meaning no longer comes from the Bible. The Bible's no longer the authority in people's lives. But instead, modern meaning and purpose comes from the self. Jesus saw two things. A neglected flock of sheep and a harvest going to waste for lack of reapers. Both imply not only a pitiful plight of the people, but a blameworthy neglect of duty on the part of their religious guides. Their religious guides failed them. They failed to guide them and show them what it means to follow Jesus. Scripture gives us two major metaphors to to describe us, and they're not flattering. Little children, like we little children, is the the metaphor that Scripture uses, and sheep. I don't know if you've ever been around sheep, but sheep are stupid, right? They just do stupid things. That's why Jesus uses that metaphor to describe us, because sometimes we're not very smart. The strength of the sheep is not in its fluffy wool. The strength of the sheep is not in its ferocious bite. It's not in its speed or its strength. The strength of the sheep is in the care and protection of the shepherd. God has designed us to be under the authority and protection and care of him and him alone. When we trust and follow God as our provider, as our shepherd, then we're able to live satisfying, joyous lives. But unfortunately, for a lot of people, their spiritual guides, their leaders, those that are close to them have unfortunately failed them. And they're questioning, can I even trust the Bible? Can I even trust God? Can I even trust my pastor? Can I even trust anything that I see? Because everything seems to be wrong. If you can't trust those that God has put in your life to shepherd you, who can you trust? Because trust is lost in the church, we have fully transitioned as a society into a post-Christian secular society. Here's what I mean. Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, he's a Catholic philosopher, and this book is so brilliant in its assessment of modern culture. Here's what he says. The change I want to define and trace is one which takes us from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. Morality, meaning, purpose, no longer derived from the authority of Scripture or from God. It's derived from inside, from internally. Many young people are finding meaning from inside. They look into themselves. Obviously, that can lead into numerous different ways. Purpose and meaning are self-discovered and self-expressed. For many modern people, there is no true shepherd. There is no true guide to a satisfying life. Now imagine, those that you trusted, those that you looked to, that celebrity pastor on Instagram who fails, okay? They fail you, 
They let you down, and you're like, what do I do now? Who do I trust now? What can we do about this? How can we remedy the situation? My prayer is that we rebuild trust in Christians, that we rebuild trust in Christianity, we rebuild trust in the church, but ultimately that we continuously point to the good shepherd Jesus who never fails and never lets us down. We as Christians are like the moon, simply reflecting the light of the sun to the world and constantly pointing to Jesus. How do we communicate the necessity of Jesus to a post-Christian secular society? Here's some helpful tips. How do we do this? First, strive diligently for sound doctrine. It is so, so important for us as church people to know the scriptures, to study the scriptures, to be in the scriptures and develop a sound, robust theology, a sound, robust doctrine. When we have a sound doctrine, we can hear the lies, the deceit from the world, from the evil one, and we can say, that's not true. That's, that's not true about God. You know, I um, oftentimes when I sit down with people, I want to listen, I want to hear, what do you think about God? What do you think about Christianity? What do you think about the church? And what I find often is, because of hurt, pain, whatever, a person says, man, I just feel like God is this distant judge in the sky who's throwing lightning bolts down every time I do wrong. And you know what I get to say? Man, I don't like that God either. (laughs) I'm not a fan of that God either. He's not the God of the Bible. God actually loves you so much that he sent a part of himself and his son Jesus, and he entered into your world so that he could pursue you in love. Next, be an attentive listener and have a posture of learning. You can learn from people of all walks of life, atheists, Buddhists, lack of faith, super religious. You can learn from all people, young, old, whatever. Have a posture of learning and of listening. I Here's what you can communicate to. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your niece, nephew, whatever, your employee. I want to know you, and I want to learn from you and about you. A posture of listening and learning. Don't confuse your cultural preferences with what is right. We all have different musical styles. Some of us are country people. Some of us are that good old time of rock and roll, you know. Some of us prefer organs in church, and some of us like the guitar in church. Some of us are like, why is he preaching from a pad and not the good old-fashioned physical print Bible? You know, we all have different cultural ideas, and we can't confuse those with what is right. Let's, Let's not major on the minors. It's important. Assume nothing. Instead, ask for clarification. Don't assume anything about the person you're chatting with, you're talking to, you know, I want to know about you, so I'm going to ask. Tell me. I I want to know. I want to know you. What does being a Christian mean to you? When you say you believe in God, what does that mean? Help me understand. And then last, don't be scared by the sin in others. When you have a a posture of learning and a posture of listening, guess what people are going to do? They're going to open up to you, and they're going to share about what they're doing. And when you're composed, strong, gracious, you're able to hear these sins and provide hope 
trust and truth in the lives of that person. Don't be scared by the sins of others. My friend called me up and he said, hey Aaron, my daughter told me she's no longer a Christian, she's no longer following Jesus, she can't stand the church, what do I need to do? And here's what I told him. I said, first of all, it's not a disaster. It's not the end of the world. Your child is not going to just go and, you know, destroy her entire life. Be patient. The Holy Spirit is powerful. When you hear the sin of others, when you hear the, the, the struggle of others, it's not the end of the world. It's not a disaster. Be composed. Be strong. Be gracious. Listen. Okay, when you say that you're, you're no longer Christian, when you say you're no longer following Jesus, why? Tell me what happened. I want to hear. I want to hear about it. And, and then have dialogue about um, the truth of Jesus. I said, listen to the hurts, the frustrations, and the ideas. And when you have sound doctrine, you're able to communicate the truth of the scriptures in opposition to the ideas or the bad ideas from the hurt and the pain. If we want to reach the next generation, we need to understand it will only happen one person at a time. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus was looking at the crowd, the helpless, harassed crowd, as if it was a harvest field. And he was looking at his disciples. He said, look, look, the harvest is plentiful, but there's 12 of us. Ask God for more workers into the harvest. Every single person in here can participate in this great harvest that we have before us. There are so many, and obviously I work with young people. There are so many young people that want to have spiritual conversations. They want to have hard conversations. They want to dig deep and fight hard and really have these discussions. And I pray that we will do that, that we'll take up that charge to have these conversations, to be an attentive listener, have a posture of learning so that we can engage in these discussions with young people. So Jesus, he uses an intentional metaphor. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Many of you here in Nebraska, there's a thing called corn. And uh, um, when you harvest corn, when you pick corn, there's this massive combine that just like runs over the corn, shoots into the back of the, the combine, and um, the grain cart follows, okay? It's, a, it's an amazing process. That's not the picture Jesus has in mind. When it comes to corn or wheat or whatever, someone plants the seed, especially in this time. An individual plants the seed. An individual waters the seed. An individual picks the the fruit that comes from this seed. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God, we need more workers into the harvest. We need more people to have wonderful, robust, spiritual conversations. God is calling us. He's calling us to take that step, but it's one person at a time, an individual process. There's no movie, Christian movie, that's going to save the world. There's no powerful Christian song that's going to save the world. There's no YouTube 
video that's going to save the world. There's no program, conference. We will only reach the next generation one person at a time. We may have a secular culture, but we have a growing spiritual culture. Young people love brutal honesty. They love to have these discussions. Let's do it. For every person to matter, there has to be a person who by hand shows another person that they matter. I'm going to say that one more time. For every person to matter, there has to be a person who by hand shows another person that they matter, one at a time, individual by individual. It's a long, steady, rewarding process. Are you that person that Jesus is calling to reap the bountiful harvest? Is God calling you? Every person needs a person. We will not reach the next generation by come and see events. We will reach the next generation through individuals who go and show in love. J.D. Greer said this, In a post-Christian, skeptical age, love on display is the most convincing apologetic. If we want to reach people who are far from God, who are alienated from God, who have been hurt, who have been distant, the best way to do that is love on display through our hands, through our time, our treasure, our talents. So you're, you're, you're praying, you're thinking, you're like, okay, yes, I, I, I've been worshiping something. I've been serving something else other than God. Or I, I would admit I've been living a life that's a little different on Sundays than it is on Tuesdays. Here's the thing. We, we all fail. We all mess up. We all are hypocrites at times. We're people. But our hope ultimately is not in each other. Our hope is not ultimately not in our being perfect. That's not what we're asking you to do. Don't be perfect. Be growing. Continuously growing. But here's where our hope is in. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Our hope is in Jesus. He's the faithful one who has never failed us. He will never fail us. He will never let us down. He will never be a hypocrite. He is continuously and always the same, always pursuing us in love, always pursuing us in relationship. When I sin, when I'm a hypocrite, when I have idols in my life, I am able to quickly and continuously return back to Jesus. And guess what? He restores me and reaffirms me every single time. That's the beauty of the gospel. The hope that we have, whether you're a young person or a parent or a grandparent, the hope we have is not in each other ultimately, but it's in Jesus who will always and continuously satisfy our souls. I want to have a time of response as we do communion together. And I'm going to pray and go ahead and grab your communion cups. Father God, as we transition into a time of reflection on what we've heard, God, will you communicate to our souls, what is it that we worship? What is it that we serve? God, are we, are we living a life that's a little different on Sundays than it is on Tuesdays? God, who are you calling me to reach? What kind of posture have I had in the past when it comes to reaching the next generation?
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you have your cup. There's a little plastic thing. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you and me. So you failed. You've messed up. You've been a hypocrite. You've had idols in your life. What's so beautiful about Jesus is his body was broken so that we can have eternal life now. That we can have eternal life now. Your response, as you're thinking through this message, as you're thinking through these verses, Jesus, I'm ready to return. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to return back to you. Will you take the bread with me? Jesus, your body was broken so that we can have eternal life. You gave yourself up freely so that we can have a relationship with God the Father. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you for allowing your precious son to have his body broken so that we can have life and have it abundantly. God, I pray for abundant life for every person that's here, that we will say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Forget all the other idols. Forget all the other passions and pursuits. We will serve the Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name.